Uh, Thank you, Ellen, for reading God's word to us uh, this morning. Before I begin, I want you to, I want to let you know that there won't be a question time after the sermon today, but please feel free to uh, consider the questions you have. You might like to jot them down and have a chat to me afterwards um, or with others over a cup of tea after the service. I thought I might begin by asking you a question. The question will hopefully help you understand what Paul is trying to get at, his main point in this passage. What would you say to someone who has just become a Christian who then asks you, what do I do now? Imagine you've had the opportunity to meet one-on-one with somebody. You may have been able to read the Bible with them or tell them your story of how you've become a Christian. And the Holy Spirit has done work in their lives. They've received the Holy Spirit by God's word and with faith, and they've accepted what Jesus has done for them and now turns to you and asks you, how do I live? What do I do now? I want you to take a moment to consider how you would respond to somebody who asks you that question. Perhaps you're a person uh, who's quite new to this whole Christianity thing, and maybe you've just become a Christian, or possibly, uh, you know, you you may have grown up in a Christian family, but uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, you've come to a point now where you're more passionate about your faith. And the question you want somebody to answer is, what do I do now? If you ask Sam Ben, he'll say, come along to LIT. Um, yeah. But uh, I, believe, I believe it's essential that every one of us here, if we're going to make a difference in this world, if we're going to uh, be making disciples of Jesus Christ, then we need to have an answer to this question. How would you answer the question of a Christian, a new Christian, who wants to know what they do next? How would you answer the question, how do I live? What do I do now? Paul says that there are two ways that you are likely to respond. One will enslave a person, and one frees a person. One keeps them imprisoned, keeps them held captive under the law, and the other explains how they have become an heir according to God's promise, and how they are freed by his grace. And here Paul says... It is the same promise of God's grace, his saving work in us that transformed us at the very beginning, bringing us from death to life. It's this very same promise that continues to be powerful and at work in us as we live every day as Christians. And so Paul urges that we must not turn back to live according to the law, and become slaves when we have been made free. And so let's pray as we begin that God would help us as we think through this challenge. Would you pray with me? (coughs) 
Heavenly Father, you have given us a promise that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we may all be your sons and daughters. Help us to live according to this promise and give us the willingness to have it change the way we live, to change the way we serve you, and the way we care for others. We ask this according to your will and in your Son's name. Amen. Well, today you'll know we're continuing this sermon series in the book of Galatians. And don't worry, if you can't remember what was said six weeks ago, you're not alone. I myself had to go back and read it again and look at my sermons and figure out what I had actually said. Uh, so um, I thought it would be great for us just to spend a couple minutes to revise what Paul has said to the churches in the region of Galatia. Paul writes this letter because he is concerned with what he has heard happening from within these churches. And in chapter 1, verse 6, you might remember Paul's astonishment that the Galatians are so quickly deserting God and his gospel. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who troubled you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And he continues by reminding them of the power of this gospel and that it is not man-made, but it comes from God. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Paul explains how this one true gospel is in contrast to what is being taught by these other false teachers who are actually distorting the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, 19, sorry, in chapter 2, verse 19, he's explicit as he explains the gospel to us and its impact on him personally, on his own life. In chapter 2, 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This gospel, this good news, is clearly the work of God, and Paul goes on to explain in the first half of chapter 3 that we have received it, not by anything that we have done, but by hearing with faith. And so therefore we must continue to live by this same gospel. And so now in the passage we're looking at today, Paul explains the difference between a promise and the law. He is careful to explain how the promise given to Abraham and the law given to Moses serve different 
purposes. See, he wants the Galatians to know that they must live by the promise rather than live under the law. And so when we are asked the question, what do I do now? What's next? How should I live? We must explain to those who ask that we live by the promise rather than by the law. And to begin, I want us to consider the language that was used by God when he gave us both the promise and the law. See, when he gave us the promise, which was given to Abraham, God says, I will. In Genesis 12, verse 2, God says, I will make a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Whereas, the law to Moses, God says, you shall. He says, you shall and you shall not. And it's all summed up in the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, where it says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And from the language used in both of these two different things where God speaks, we're meant to realize that the promise that was given to Abraham describes what God is going to do in this world. It's God's plan for salvation. He says, I will do it. The promise describes the way God's grace will be evident. The promise says nothing about what we must do or we shall do, but rather what he will do for us. And Paul here, at the very beginning in verse 15, he starts by giving us a human example to make it more clear for us the argument that he's making about the difference between the promise and the law. And so read with me from verse 15 again. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And so here the translation and the words they use which at the very beginning of verse 15, even with a man-made covenant, might be kind of confusing to us. But in today's uh, culture, we understand this idea as a person's will or their final, their last will and testament. And the point that Paul is making here is that the covenant of a person, their will, their plan for their future, what they promise to those who are still alive after they die, cannot be changed. It is irreversible. And because if you actually change them after they pass away, it's actually no longer their will, their promise. You've changed it. And I want to give you a personal example of this uh, from my grandmother. 
and her will. After my grandmother died, it became apparent that in her will, she promised her house to one of my uncles for as long as he needed it. Now, one of my uncles, uh, he had a brain injury when he was very young from an accident, and he lives with permanent brain damage. It affects the way he thinks and behaves. And so my grandmother, in her final attempt and effort to care for her disabled son, wrote in her will that he was allowed to stay in the house for as long as he needed it. Now, I don't doubt my grandmother's wishes and her concern for her son, that she was seeking the best for him at that time. But the reality is, is that my uncle cannot live by himself in that house. And it's been very clear as time goes on since my grandmother's death, that this may not be the best way to care for him. And so it's been very difficult for the other members in my family to care for him because of my grandmother's will. And they've considered trying to get it changed, but the fact is that if they do, it would no longer be my grandmother's will. So my grandmother's will cannot be changed. And this is the human example that Paul uses. He says, if the will or covenant or a promise of a person cannot be changed, then how much more is the promise of God unchangeable? See, God's promise is still in effect today. God gave to Abraham a promise, a promise that is binding and eternal, a promise that has its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, so that every person who believes in his saving work rather than their own, who trusts in his death and resurrection rather than any good work or merit of their own, they receive his promised blessing through the Holy Spirit. And skip down with me to see the effect of this in verse 29. Paul says in verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We receive the promise that God made to Abraham because we are now his offspring, because we are Christ's. And this promise was not altered in any way, even with the introduction of the law passed down to Moses, which came some 430 years later. And so here Paul wants the Galatians to understand what it means to live by the promise rather than to live by the law because it's all how we are to live as Christians. Paul explains that to live by promise means to live by faith in Jesus Christ, and to live by the law means to live by works. Living by the law means that we must do particular things or don't do particular things. 
And these are the things that are focused on so often when someone becomes a Christian. The new Christian knows that they are to change the way they live. After hearing the word and accepting Jesus through faith, they want to ask the question, what now? How should I live? And they look to us for the answers to these questions. And too often we explain to them what parts of their life need changing. And we tell them things like, well, no more getting drunk. No more sleeping around. No more using that sort of language around here. Don't do that. Do this. And in doing so, the life that we're actually describing to them or dictating to them is a life of works by the law. And Paul says this should not be the way we encourage fellow believers. Instead, instead he actually urges us to encourage them to continue to live by faith because of the grace that God has lavished upon his people. And as we encourage them in their faith, we are to trust that the Holy Spirit will be at work in them to convict them of their sinfulness and transform their life so that they too may bring glory and honor to God through all that they do and say. We encourage the Holy Spirit convicts. And let's look at how Paul explains what we are to do then with this law because he preempts two questions that arise when comparing the promise and the law. Read with me from uh, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19. Paul asks, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And 21, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law was given by God for a very different purpose. The law was given not to be the means of salvation, but to convince people of their need for salvation. Through the law, we understand that we cannot do what is needed to be right with God. The law points us to the one and only person who can. And that means that the law is not in any way in opposition to the promise because the law was needed so that we can see the need, so that we could believe. And then read with me what Paul says from verse 24 onwards. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul here wants us all to understand that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then we all live by this promise. 
we live by the promise, we walk day by day by this promise, and we need to stop being held captive under the guardian, under the law. And now I want to make myself uh, clear. I want to make sure that you don't hear what I'm not saying, because I would hate for you to go away and think that this means that we soften or reduce the severity of sin. That's not what we do. It's actually the opposite. The law is here to expose our sin, to expose it and condemn it, to expose us and what our human nature is really like. The law is there so that we can know who we really are. We are sinful, rebellious, and guilty under the judgment of God. That's who we are. We are helpless and unable to save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do that will make us right with God, and so we've got to stop trying. And so perhaps some of us here need to stop beating ourselves up about not getting it right all the time and realize that God understands that this side of heaven, we cannot be perfect. And that we will make mistakes, and when we do... He says, turn to him, turn to God and remember that because we are in Christ, we are heirs according to his promise. We are adopted as sons and daughters into his family and we no longer remain slaves to our sin. And Paul has so much more to say about this in the, in the next few chapters and we will continue to look at the next few chapters and over the next few weeks, but Paul here wants us to know how God's promise makes it possible for us to be called his children, to be adopted as his children, to be heirs because we are sons and daughters of the promise. And so read with me what he says in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Mike helpfully uh, read this at the very beginning. And I too, when I was preparing the sermon, was wondering, I had this question, why does it say that God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts crying, crying, Abba, Father? And Mike pointed out quite clearly that it's like a child crying to his father. But why crying? Why are we crying? You may remember that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, cried this very same thing. Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It is a cry from Jesus to his Father. And it is a cry in his greatest time of need. And it's the same for us. Now for us, we also echo these words of Jesus. And we do it in our greatest time of need. We do it in response to our sinfulness and our human condition. It's in a response to our pain and our suffering we face. It's a cry in response to the fact that we understand our depravity, our wickedness in the faith, face of God who has promised us his undeserved gift of grace. 
We cry it because we understand that we are dead and he is the one that makes us alive. So when we fail to do what is good, when we fail to do what's right, we can either turn to God and cry out to him or we can just turn to ourselves in despair. When we try to live the right way in order to be right with God, we set ourselves up for failure. When we're doing well, we're happy with ourselves and we think things are great. But when we're not doing so well, the pressure gets to us. I know what this is like. Many times when you're reading the Bible or you hear sermons, what you're hearing is all the ways that we need to be better or do better at life. We need to try harder to keep ourselves right with God. And there's just more and more demands, more pressure for you to do various things and to be better. And uh, eventually, even though you might achieve some of these demands, it seems like more and more pop up. It is inevitable that eventually we will crush under the pressure of the law, it will all become too much. Now, I used to be a physics teacher, so I love experiments. And I love how they illustrate different concepts. I've got a video, actually, of an, an experiment that I thought would help us understand what happens when objects can no longer cope with the pressure that they are put under. So I want to watch what happens when too much pressure is applied to objects using a hydraulic press. Let's watch it now. about you, but I could watch those all day. There's 10 minutes of that, and I just watched all 10 minutes when I was uh, preparing for this. Maybe this is the way that you have understood the gospel. Maybe you're sitting here today and think, 
the hydraulic press is a good illustration of what the gospel feels like in your life. Like you're being crushed by the pressure put on you to do better or to be better. And this, if this is you here today, I want to tell you that this is not the gospel. What it is, is you actually feeling the pressure of the weight of your sin. It's not the weight of what God is expecting of you, but the weight of believing if you only did more and were a better person, then God would look more favorably on you. If you are ever feeling enslaved or trapped by what is required of you by God, then you are living under the law, living by your own efforts and through your own works. And it is inevitable that you will either want to give it all up and throw it all away, or it will eventually destroy you. So instead of living by the law, Please hear God's words written by the Apostle Paul in chapter 4, verse 6 again, where he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. You are no longer imprisoned. You are no longer under the law. But you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are all sons and daughters of God. You have received the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. And so continue to believe that that is how we are to live. Let Jesus Christ be the one who saves you. And let what you do account for absolutely nothing. And if you perhaps are feeling crushed by the pressure you may need to consider how you can cry out to your Father and cast all your cares on Him. But perhaps also you aren't feeling that pressure right now and you may need to consider how you are contributing to this pressure for others. How you are explaining the gospel to those around you. Here in this letter, Paul is not only concerned with how we personally live, but how we treat others. And so I want, you to, I want to challenge you here today. Consider whether or not you're spending more time teaching others what they need to do and don't do, rather than teaching them about the free gift of grace given to them through the death of Jesus Christ. See, the corporate culture of our church is actually made up of the individual cultures in this church. Our shared attitude comes from you personally. How we individually treat others is how together we are seen to treat others. Paul says to all the churches in Galatia, they are to continue to live by grace and to encourage others to continue to live by grace. By grace, to make sure everyone has the opportunity to hear about this free gift. And when they hear it, that they understand that that's the free gift that we live by, not by works. Friends, as the church here in 2508, we must have the same culture, 
the same shared attitude so that anyone, so that everyone who has anything to do with us knows that we are unified in Christ and that if they come to know Jesus and him crucified, that they will not be judged. They will not be told this is the law that they have to live by. Brothers and sisters, we cannot accept the free gift of grace in our own lives and expect others to live by the law. We need to support each other, build each other up, regardless of where they are from, whether they're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. When the eyes of those who do not know Jesus look on our church, they must not see rules and rituals that they have to live by to know Jesus. They cannot see, as Paul puts it, us observing days and months and seasons and years. Rather, they must see a way of life that depends on Christ. They must see us boasting in the promise of God's grace as we live as heirs according to his promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to live every day by your promise. We ask you to continue to work in us through your Holy Spirit so that we do not turn back to the way we once lived, but rather we continue to live as those who have died with Christ and are living by faith in your Son who loved us and gave himself up for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's no question time today, uh, but I'm going to give you just a few minutes to consider what was said, what Paul has written written to the uh, Galatians, uh, and you might like to also spend some time in prayer. The band will come up in a few minutes to sing our final song. Thanks, Matt. I was just thinking through a 